0: Hey, my name is Vitaly Klopot, and this is the Business of Education podcast. The podcast for higher education professionals looking for insights in the business of education. Each episode, I will be attempting to bridge the gap between business, marketing, education technology, and social impact through conversations with guests and friends. This week, I'm talking to Anders Krohn, co-founder and CEO of Aula a learning experience platform for education that is looking to transform digital infrastructure by replacing learning management systems such as Blackboard and Canvas and emails. The Aula team works with multiple universities in the UK and the US. Enjoy.
1: Anders, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks. How for are you? Here. I'm very good. I'm very good. I'm uh, in my old home in Denmark, enjoying the snowy weather. Where in Denmark are you? Uh, Just north of Copenhagen. Okay. And you you grew up in in Denmark? Yeah. So my story is that I grew up just north of Copenhagen, uh, lived here for about 18 years. And then when I graduated from high school in Denmark, I went on this uh, pretty uh, interesting slash weird educational journey starting out in the the rural south in the US, right in between Atlanta and Alabama, uh, studying at a former... Uh, Community College, University of West Georgia, which was really actually where I started to get quite interested in education and the impact that educational institutions can have on regions and the impact that uh, individual educators can have on the lives of students. As you can probably imagine, the difference between uh, Denmark in terms of education and and the South and in the US is quite stark, and it was it was very eye-opening for me to just see how transformative the university was to, to my uh, classmates in, in Georgia. And so after that, I, I basically traveled the world studying a bit in China and Denmark and the UK. And so I've seen a bit of everything, um, ended up studying at five different universities on, on three continents uh, without getting a degree. So uh, <laughs> quite, the, quite the journey. Was it your parents who pushed you to go and study abroad? Uh, not really i think it was it was mostly my myself i think the um for me it was an opportunity both to learn about new cultures but also coming from the danish educational system i think i had a desire to see what was uh what was hiding outside of denmark because denmark is quite a small country so it's as a young person here it's it's very uh, it's quite hard to imagine like what's uh what's on the other side and I think international education is, is a really powerful uh, lens through which you can basically become a better uh, global global citizen and I think that has informed uh, a big part of my uh, who I am now and my ability to empathize with people from different regions of the world but also my sort of overall view on, on global politics and things like that. Nice I, I always find
0: well-traveled global citizens are just kind of much more well-rounded individuals so much easier to kind of really have a good holistic conversation about things so um yeah I I am I, um, very much resonate with that
1: um how did you end up in the UK um so that was so after I was in the US I had a desire to keep studying studying abroad um and so there was actually it was not necessarily particularly the UK that I wanted to to study, and I was at that point I studied primarily uh, economics, and there were some good opportunities in 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 the UK there. So either I could stay in the US or I could go to the UK, and for various reasons I, I ended up in the in the UK. It's a bit closer closer to home, but there is obviously also uh, lots of great uh, great universities in the UK, and and not a bad university
0: to end up with in yeah. the UK. Um, yeah.
1: Did you have your eyes kind of set on Oxford or how did that come to be? Um, to some extent, yes, I was actually, it's actually not, e- it was, um, it took a few rounds, <laughs> let's put it like that. Uh, so I knew I wanted to study, study, uh, e- economics. Um, I had studied some economics in the US, I studied some economics in, 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 in Denmark and, um, I actually Oxford was the only university that didn't reject me, so that was a uh, that was how how I ended up there. But I had a I had a great experience. I think now where I understand a bit more about uh, what makes for great teaching and learning. I think there's definitely oh there's possibilities uh, for for improvements at at Oxford, but I but I had a had a great time. That's funny when uh, talking about rejections when
0: when I first kind of started. Um, my role at Arden University, um, the chief exec joked with me that um, we reject more students than Oxford, um, which is true. Um, but obviously just the, the volume of students that we have, um, it, it differs massively. So um, a lot, um, it, yeah, it puts things in perspective, but it's funny, you mentioned Oxford and rejection, and it reminded me of the, 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 the challenge that we had in sorting out our admissions process, et cetera. So cool. So you, you ended up, um, in Oxford, um, and, and what happened then? How did you kind of bridge the gap for me between, um, the, the journey in Oxford and and eventually
1: Aula? Yeah. So it was, I actually had absolutely no desire to become an entrepreneur, (laughs) uh, but I had, um, I started a a company with a few friends uh, which was focused on on university events and that didn't really work out as uh, as intended and and so at some point during this this journey um I had always had a desire to do something that was a bit closer to the, to the learning experience. I'd had some pretty bad, I would say myself, uh, digital learning experiences across the world uh, <laughs> basically. And and so it was very clear to me if that was an opportunity there. So we started to basically talk with some of my professors and and, and started what is now, now ALDA. I think the, obviously ALDA has evolved a lot since, since then. Um, but there, there are still, a few things that hold true as like sort of kernel of truth for like why we exist as an, as an organization. So I think fundamentally like the, the change we want to see in, in the world is really about empowering learners to reach their full potential. Like that was like, I think that has always been a sort of true, true north for, for, for us. And in terms of the, the mechanism through which we, we do that, we have a, a a mission statement which is to empower educators to make every learning experience truly engaging. And there's a lot of things that have changed, but I actually think all, those, all of those two things have been articulated quite differently throughout time. They basically reflect the the entire entire journey and like the importance of the educator to to basically to to human potential and and that is that is still very much what we do to this day we just got a lot better at it (laughs) have you
0: found yourself um changing slightly the mission of the vision a little bit since inception since Um, that original idea and that
1: original kind of seed i think the If I had to point out like one trend that has happened very much in my head in terms of like the change we can affect in the world, I would say we've become a lot more focused on the importance of pedagogy, learning design, things like that. Whereas initially I didn't really know what those things were. And so we naturally became a, a sort of fairly technology focused technology company and I think really what we're, what we are very good at today is everything that sits on the intersection of easy to use technology and evidence informed learning design. And and that is sort of our secret sauce. Like when I look into the world, I see, I see a lot of technology companies that are not particularly good at, at pedagogy or, and they try to claim their pedagogy agnostic, but then they're not really and stuff like that. And then I see quite a few, uh, sort of let's say like learning design consultancies or other things that are not necessarily have the fundamentals in terms of building the things that technology allows you to do in terms of scalability and other things. And so really our entire product strategy now sits on in the intersection of easy use technology and evidence informed learning design. And that is very different from when we when we started out. And I think we're just getting better and better and better at at, at that. Um, and the outcomes for the students, which is ultimately what it's about, they they follow. It's it, and and obviously like that is really what we're doing is we're building tools for for educators to make make that happen.
0: Interesting. Um, I wanted to pick your brain on a number of topics, and as you were talking, I was trying to mentally bookmark things for me to go back to. Um. Can we go back to you starting or, or getting the idea of starting a business? You mentioned you didn't really want to become an entrepreneur. Um, <laughs> yeah. You're at uni. Um, any advice and any insight into people who are, um, you know, either undergrad or postgraduate students at universities and, and come up with a business? Um, did you use, and and obviously you are at a good school, so you probably had more um opportunities to kind of share your ideas and kind of brainstorm and get some feedback from from wider faculty or what have you but any insights and and tips for people who are in similar positions today
1: um so i think first of all the most important question to ask yourself as an entrepreneur is like, what do you actually want? Like what is the type of business you want to build or type of organization you want to build? Um, The second question is obviously like, how can you build something that people want? Which is, which is, if you don't, if you can't do that, you don't have something. Probably just as important. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Then you don't have a sustainable, uh, sustainable company. I think probably some of the things that I If I could advise a younger version of myself. I think one is that like becoming an entrepreneur doesn't necessarily have to start with starting a company like that is very much choosing the the tough path Um, and uh, and I think there's lots of opportunities out there um, both within universities and with organizations to get some of that experience without necessarily Uh, starting off as the person who's accountable for basically everything. Um, So that is like one advice that I, and I don't actually necessarily always think that starting a company is the fastest way to become a great entrepreneur. So, but nevertheless, that is the path that I chose. Uh, And I think having made that decision and knowing what my own ambitions were and what type of organization that I wanted to create, which I think is the easiest way to summarize that is the sort of the with a longer term view, the three things that matter to me is that I want to have an impact I want to have that impact at scale. And in doing that I want to build an organization that has one of those cultures where when people leave they talk about <laughs> they talk about that culture. Like those I think that summarizes like my own ambitions uh, quite quite well and in, and owl is obviously an amazing vehicle for that and I, and I, I feel very privileged to be able to, to be in a position that I'm in right now. But I think I could have gotten to this position faster if I had had a better understanding of the fundamentals of building something people want. I think that is like if I look at my own journey as an entrepreneur, that I've just gotten a lot better at that. Uh, And ultimately, that is that is what it's all about if you want to build a sustainable organization.
0: And I think that's probably natural. Um, You know, when I looked at. um, Well, first of all, if you look at huge multinational companies, they often change their actual mission and vision throughout their uh, kind of evolution and, and, and um, journey so you know um, companies like Google didn't necessarily start out as as search, search engines for absolutely everybody but it was very um, you know targeted and specific to I know, I know Yahoo started for kind of uh, uh, text-based ads for SMEs and then diversified so everybody I think all companies big or small go through a self-learning,
1: kind of yeah. journey
0: where they um they redefine themselves every now and again um to really capture that product market fit and adapt to to learnings um along the way um, you mentioned culture and you mentioned um uh being involved with some previous projects with friends etc uh, and, and and culture seems to me like something that you're extremely passionate about. You you were very specific about what type of business you want to build. Yeah. Um and, and you mentioned culture was important. Talk me through that a little bit. So what, you know, how what is your definition of a good healthy culture in the business and what are you trying to build in Aula from a culture perspective? Yeah. My and I can tell you something, kind of my um perceptions looking from the outside in yeah um one of the things that i noticed very very quickly is the transparency so um things that really stood out for me was um your use of kind of notion as a platform to just quickly have a one-stop shop for everything that we believe in whether that's the people in the company and their contact details or um, I can't remember the words that you use, and I'm sure you'll correct me, but some kind of a manifesto to say, look, this is who we are, and this is what we stand for. And yeah. um, so, so talk to me a little bit about that. How do you view those things?
1: Yeah, so I, I think we could, if we start at a sort of high level, then I can explain a bit more about what, how we think about it at all. So I think fundamentally, the easiest way to think about culture is in two things. So one is like culture is, is all ultimately a manifestation of what it means to belong in an in a specific organization, and that manifestation, I would argue, comes much more through what you do rather than what you say. So I think those are like the two big tenets of of, of culture. In terms of how you create a strong culture, I think actually one of the most important things as a leader is to make choices like to be deliberate about the culture that you want to to create and we're very honest about that at at Aula in the sense that we have a a, a strong commitment to diversity and inclusion but diversity should not be mistaken with the idea that we're trying to create an organization for everyone we're not and I think actually our culture in some sense works as a bit of uh, as a disinfectant for the types of people we want to attract and and, filter and so retain, so. yeah. So I think that is that is def- that is how I think about culture. When we, if you sort of dive one level deeper and like look at like what is the culture, what is the culture at Aula actually like? I think there are some things that are reflected in the way we operate. So we've been a fully remote organization for a few years, which is obviously does have an impact on 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 the the organization. But even deeper, I think the we have what we call virtues, and virtues are basically. Uh, what other organizations might call values, we just have an expectation that values are put into action, and therefore we call them virtues. Um, and our three virtues are to be silly ambitious, to be uncomfortably focused, and to be transparent by default. And so, if you if you if we go through those one by one, silly ambition is really about. Creating a culture where people feel safe and comfortable to make some of those bets and some of those decisions that make your palms sweaty. <laughs> and we can go out and say, actually, we expect everyone to, to, to do that. Uh, uncomfortably focused is basically giving people the permission to say no. It's like, how do we make sure that we create an organization where we say no to a lot of good projects so that we can focus all of our energy and all of our resources on the great projects. I think this is both good for um, sort of mental health and other things, but it's it's also an extremely strong strategic tool because it makes it very easy to align the entire organization. And the final virtue um, is to be transparent by default. And it base, it sort of is what it, <laughs> what it says on the, on the tin. and. And this is reflected in quite a few different ways. And I think we're getting better and better at it. Um, one is that we keep a lot of our documentation is, is public. Um, so we have our little brain, which is where we, where we put things out and out in the open about what we do, who we are, how we recruit, what tools we're using and, and things like that. But even more fundamentally, I think where this virtue has really come into its, its right both for myself and for others in the organization is that when we make really tough decisions or when we've gone through tough periods as, as all organizations have, we're extremely transparent with the organization or at least we try to be extremely transparent with the organization about what are actually the si- decisions and the situations that we're, the leaders in the organization are, are navigating. And what I think is really cool about that is that that then has started to mirror onto the way that we work with, uh, with other organizations. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm happy that you say that you've, you've noticed that. And basically what we're given is we're giving everyone who works at Aula a legitimate reason to be transparent. So that I think a good example is like how transparent can you be with your partner institutions? Given that one of our virtues is to be transparent by default, we expect people to be transparent um and if if a partner institution came back to us and said like this member of the our team has told us uh something absolutely ridiculous then the main thing that i have to look at is like did they tell them the truth or did they tell them something else and if they told them the truth that's in line with our culture and i think we've seen we've seen this positively impact our partnerships with universities tremendously in some cases like it it just saves so much time so much effort that a member of the team can go to a vice chancellor and say one of our virtues is to be transparent by default i'm really sorry to tell you this but this is what i'm seeing and that just makes for so much more productive relationships um it's certainly not for everyone to be on the inside of that but that is also not the intention
0: uh, yeah it's hard and um I can imagine it's not intuitive for everybody that comes into the organization. So you need to filter for that and check for those virtues before you bring people into the company. Yeah. Um, And I can imagine that is a challenge. Um, You mentioned partnerships and university partnerships. Um, I'd I'd love to know more around um, lessons learned um, selling into universities. Um, and I'm, I'm using the term selling in the, in the most crude uh, possible way, um, on purpose, but you know, it is what it is. So from, from, for people who are in the business of education, um, and see themselves as a vendor, um, you know, naturally, me and you would now know and haven't had our experiences selling into universities is not easy, um, by any stretch of the imagination. They're they're big, you know, institutions. And in, in most cases, um, very bureaucratic, um, quite kind of uh, political in many instances. Um, you've got everything from you know hoops and and and. Um, uh barriers to jump through whether that's um official procurement processes or whether that's um you know people and their belief systems etc yeah what has been your experience of selling into institutions um and is there a difference between the US and the UK um to date and and any insight into that aspect and that difference
1: yeah so firstly, I think goes without saying that when you're, when you're in, a, in a regulated industry, there, there are some complications that, that come with that. And I don't think that's, that's un, unnatural. I think, the to me, the relevant distinction, and, and I don't really have enough context. I've, I have worked with both US and UK institutions, but definitely more with UK institutions. So I don't think I have enough context in the geographical distinction. But I think one very interesting distinction that I'm sort of toying around with is one that comes from from Phil Hill, who's a blogger on tech, technology, or I can actually remember if it's him or Michael Feldstein, who says that there's fundamentally two types of universities. There are those who have an operational commitment to student success and those that have a philosophical commitment to student success. And I think the I'm increasingly seeing that it's much easier for us to create value, like, I would almost say infinitely easier for us to create value for institutions that have an operational commitment to student success. And so the question then becomes, how can you, I, and and I think you can have a university that has a philosophical commitment to student success with progress of the university having an operational commitment to student success. I think that there can be like very variants of that, but at a high level, I think the some of the markers that i look for when we see like what is the potential of this partner is for example how opinionated is the executive team when it comes to what constitutes sound pedagogy and a good learning experience that's in line with the university strategy it's it's very very hard i find to work with uh, universities where the leadership team are not willing to take that stance, and we try and stay stay clear of that. You can then discuss whether those universities have a have a future or or not. I don't. There are various situa- there are various reasons why you could why you could end up with a philosophical rather than operational commitment, and some and there are different things that drive value value in education. But fundamentally, we try to focus on those institutions that have an operational commitment to, to student success. I would say, crudely speaking, in the UK, I find that that is fairly correlated with high proportion of commuter students, high proportion of first generation students, and high proportion of mature students, where literally you need an operational commitment to student success. Is it fair to say it's correlated to rankings? Um, so this is where geography becomes interesting. I think there is a there's definitely some element of a correlation to rankings, but I think we, first of all, we've seen big shifts in rankings both in the UK and elsewhere, where the shifts I would say are driven primarily by the academics at those institutions knowing that the leadership has <laughs> an operational commitment to student success. Um, so in that sense, it's it's hard to it's hard to pinpoint whether it's exactly. Just, just ranking, and the fact that you have a good brand means that you can. You can. Uh, philosophical commi- commitment is sufficient because the students will arrive anyways. I think that is probably a bit different in the, in the UK and in 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 the US. To use those two countries as as examples, uh, what's interesting though is that if I think, and this is where the league tables are are quite flawed in in my opinion, where I would say it is correlated is with what in. K-12, we call it sort of value-added education. Like how much value does an institution or an educator for that matter, if we keep every all characteristics of the student population constant, like how much value does that institution or that educator add uh, in terms of student outcomes, whether that's achievement satisfaction or retention. I would say if we look at, if we imagined an imaginary league table that puts institutions that have the highest value at, at the top and then rank them in that order, um, then I would argue that that is directly correlated with an operational commitment to student success.
0: Interesting. Interesting.
1: Anders, the other thing I wanted to talk about is
0: um, convenience and the notion of convenience. Um, Looking at existing um, education technology providers, vendors, platform solutions out there, to me, my gut instinct tells me that the default is to overcomplicate. I'm looking at existing learning management systems and VLEs. Um, I'm certainly looking at the solution that we currently have within Arden on a, a somewhat outdated Moodle platform. Having looked at the usage of all of the functionality that we have slowly built over the years, the reality is that more than 50% of the functions aren't mandatory and simply aren't being used. Yeah. And so there's a race to um the essentials, and there's a there's a there's a notion of trying to get to the bare bones and the most important aspects that really drive, as you said, great learning experiences. Yeah. Um how do you look at convenience uh, from a personal point of view at, at Aula? How important is it? Why is it not talked about enough?
1: Yeah. So I think there's a few components here. One of the things that makes educational technology fascinating, also hard sometimes, is that the question I think we have to ask ourselves is like, what is it that we want to be convenient? And so I I think there is definitely some very direct examples of things that are just like painful <laughs> like mm-hmm. I would definitely say that some of the some of the systems that the university is currently using are are just that literally painful. I think if we don't really use the word convenience uh, much at all at uh, but I, I think the one way to think about what we do is that we make it more convenient for educators to create what we call community-first learning experiences. And the easiest way to think about that is in contrast to what you might call a content-first learning experiences, which is more of a sort of lecture type uh, approach. But I think there is also, from a student perspective, there are certain things that are unequivocally good if we make them more convenient. So for example, like great access on mobile devices, stuff like this are like unequivocally good, but there are elements of the learning experiences that are inherently not necessarily convenient from a student perspective. And that just comes into like, what? when do people actually learn? And so when we think about what constitutes a good community first learning experience, I think you can break that into two things. You can break it into academic challenge and meaningful connection. Uh, and we would never want to sacrifice the academic challenge for more, more convenience. And so this is the sort of thing that we're, we're navigating and ultimately it's the decision of the uh, educator, like what is the right level of academic challenge for this this uh, more uh, module or course, but what we can help is that we can make it easier, uh, more convenient for the academic to deliver their vision for what the learning experience could be. And then obviously we have opinions right? and I, we don't hide that to people I think. A lot of technology companies in education, they will go out and say, we're completely agnostic. You can do whatever you want, blah, 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 complete flexibility. That's not what we do. Like we have we have an opinion. We think there is sufficient research to suggest what makes for good learning experiences in particular settings. And if, um, if I meet a vice chancellor who tells me that they think that just lecturing on on end is the right way to teach then it's probably not a good fit and we're pretty honest about that we're not we're not trying to convince people who who don't want to be convinced i think there's we can obviously by putting our opinion into the world hopefully we can influence uh the the world but at the end of the day i think what we want to do is we want to give educators a vehicle we want to empower them to make every learning experience truly engaging
0: yeah, for for me, it's really about the concept of embedding, as you said, you know, not removing the academic challenge uh, and not ignoring it. You can't ignore it, and that would obviously be wrong. Um, it's trying to embed the academic challenge into everyday life mm-hmm. to wrap. I think the opportunity for businesses in the space is to wrap and find opportunities and ways to wrap academic challenges around everyday life mm-hmm. um and and that to me is is some of the arbitrage that you know i'm seeing a lot of companies play in at the moment is how do you as you mentioned it's it's actually understanding when are people happy to have an academic challenge you know and again that's different for everybody you yeah. um at what time of the day and in, in what location through what media what medium or what device but but to me it's about not adding more to the already existing overcrowded ecosystem of apps and devices and, and media and content that surrounds us today. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the more people think around that as a concept of how to weave in natural, um learning processes and 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 um journeys into everyday experiences and everyday life yeah um i think that's where the magic is Um,
1: and that that i completely agree with And, and one of our um one of our product principles is to celebrate simplicity and i think that that holds true for both the way we think about learning design and the way we think about technology and i think actually one of the easiest way to make this both more simple for educators and more simple for students is to think, okay, what are actually, what are the student outcomes we want to achieve? What are the sort of pedagogical patterns that will take us there? And not start with the sort of technology uh, first. And then what we're doing is we're saying, okay, we can build technology and we can do t- learning design that will empower those educators to, to make that a uh, reality where I think what has happened for a lot of universities is that, I can't remember who told me this analogy, but it's as if the, if they were like the plumbers, they would put the pipes like visible <laughs> on the toilet. like And that is, I think people have completely, they have sort of built digital systems for teaching and learning for a very particular subset of educators who are just not representative of what it what it actually takes to to create these truly engaging learning experiences. Um,
0: yeah, as as with any product design journey, you end up forgetting your true customer and true stakeholder, and then you know just diverging into um, rabbit holes that are hard to get out of afterwards. I think, um, yeah. and that's certainly what I've seen as well with a lot of tech in the space. So just to wrap up on Aula, where, where are you now on your journey? How, how big is the team?
1: What are the, what's the next step in the evolution? Yeah. So maybe just for, for, for those who don't know what Aula is, so at Aula, we're building what we call the learning experience platform for, for higher education. And really everything we do is about making it easy for educators to create these community first learning experiences. Um, In terms of where we are as an organization, we, the thing that excites me the most is that we're starting to have really solid evidence of impact at scale. Um, so we, we can look at that in different ways, but that's both in terms of time saved for academics and also in terms of student uh, student outcomes. So I think most university leaders I talk with would say that they estimate it takes at least 80 hours of an academic's time to transition away from the traditional lecture based format towards an, an engaging digital learning experience. And we have solid evidence that at least for a meaningful proportion, of course, we would use that below eight hours. So that's a, from 80 to 80, that's a meaningful achievement. And at the same time, we do see significant uh, increases in uh, student uh, outcomes. I think the best leading indicator is probably student satisfaction where for example, for Coventry's uh, May cohort, which was the first one after the, the pandemic, we saw an average of 25% increase in internal uh, evaluation evaluations around student satisfaction, which is, uh, and for some of those academics, it's the first time teaching online, but also the first time uh, receiving hundred percent student satisfaction. So that is great, and we're starting to see lots of universities across the sector move very fast. We started working with UWS over the summer; they moved all first-year students to Aula in September. We're working with Chester, LSPU, and quite a few others. And so, in in terms of where we are, I would say. If, of the universities in the UK, if we say there are about 150, and 50 of them fit um, the sort of bill on, on high proportion of commuter first year or mature students, we will probably by September work with about half of those. I think that's where we are now. Awesome. Um, and in terms of team, uh, so this is this is where it gets a bit complicated. So we <laughs> we have our, our our core core team, um, which is just around 40 people now. Um, but we also have a very sizable extended team. So this can be, for example, uh, very. Ex- we're extremely good at hiring very experienced consultants, for example, in both product marketing, engineering, and and, and other things. So that, that increases the size of the extended uh, team. And then on top of that, we have an, a brilliant community of, of learning, learning designers um, who work with us to basically make the transformation of these, these modules uh, happen. And so it's, it's a bit hard to pinpoint exactly how many, <laughs> how many people, uh, people people we are at, at, at this point. Um, and ultimately, I think what a much better marker for me is like, what are the outcomes that, that we're achieving and at what scale are we, are we doing that? Um, not so much how, how big is the company in terms of number of people who work there.
0: You you mentioned, Anders, um, the learning designers or and the instructional designers. Yeah. Um, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong. But a, a big part of the need to recruit the wider network of designers was because you pivoted the business model slightly. Yeah. And I wanted to just spend two minutes talking about that. So, um, you I think started with a per license or per student kind of. Um, license fee of some sort yeah um and pivoted into what i call the original coca-cola business model uh where they <laughs> uh, essentially sold cans of coke yeah. and gave you the fridges for free to to yeah. store the, the the merchandise in yeah um or the other way around I, I can't actually remember what it is but you know you 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 get the meat and then you get the You get the core product and then you get the periphery around it. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so just talk to me a little bit about that shift and and why that happened and do you think that's something that other businesses should potentially explore?
1: Um, So why did it happen? I think, again, this comes down to our uh, our mission statement uh, of empowering educators to make every learning experience truly engaging. And what we saw very clearly was that when we looked, whether that's an engagement stats or surveys and other or other things, is that when a module, let's say Economics 101, was just taught on Aula without any other, other changes, that would improve engagement, something relative to the LMS. And, and it's quite a lot, but... What was interesting was that when a module was redesigned uh, so that it's the technology and the learning design, the results were just extraordinary. Uh, And that is really what we decided to to lean into and say uh, what we want to be really good at is this combination of easy to use technology, evidence informed learning design to the point where if a university reaches out to us today and say, "Can we just buy the technology?" They get a no. If they reach out to us and say, "Can we just buy the learning design?" They get a no. What we're good at is the combination of those two things, and I think the results speak for themselves. So there are a lot of things we can get better at for sure. Like there's an, obviously this is still uh, sort of fairly early on, on on the journey, but I think even with where we are today, the results are remarkable compared to where we were a year ago and the when i look at our roadmap for the next year i <laughs> i don't even know where where where, where we will uh, will we'll, we will we'll end up in terms of really empowering educators to to deliver these these learning experiences and so yeah so we've we made that change should other companies do it I think for a lot of education startups that are operating in the learning space or the teaching and learning space, they do not have a deep enough understanding of how humans learn and pedagogy. So whether they should change the business model and their pricing and the product and everything else, I think is a separate question. Should they get better at understanding pedagogy? Yes, I think that is for sure. And I think what this has allowed us to do is to become extremely good at that combination and extremely doing good at doing it at pace and at scale. Uh, to the point where we can have uh, hundreds of modules being transformed in in a matter of of, of days, uh, and I think that is that is so. <laughs> should someone try and? I mean, competition is good, so I I wouldn't say that someone should not try and do that. But we're I think we're we're getting getting pretty uh, pretty remarkably good at that.
0: Sounds like you're comfortable and in, in your skin and in in that space. Um, what are some of the exciting? Companies that you're seeing, whether that's in the learning and teaching space, or online learning, or education technology in general, anybody that's um,
1: that's really exciting you at the moment? Um, actually, let me try. Let's try and take some analogies outside of education and see, like, how I think about the potential implications for for EdTech. Um, so, I think there's one piece around evidence, where I think uh, digital health technology is just one step ahead of education in terms of documenting impact and 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 evidence both from an economic perspective and from a health perspective and that's a change that i i hope to see in the education space where we become more uh sort of data informed and and research informed around the impact that we're we're seeing so that's some i think there there are some good examples in, in the health space that would um would as a matter of example, would be able to help improve at least those educational technology companies that work in the teaching and learning space.
0: So is that just around, sorry, I'll I'll stop you there for a second, Anders. Is that just around standardization and kind of a common framework and people getting together and really
1: agreeing to some standards or? Um, I think it's not so much it's basically asking the question, does it work? <laughs> and not just does the technology work, does it work in terms of student outcomes, which is what mm-hmm. it's ultimately about. And I think one of the things that few people don't know about Al is that for all of our partners, we run fairly frequent impact evaluations. And when people tell me that other suppliers don't do that, I'm like, <laughs> like, how do you buy them? It's like, and, and I think that that is something we're we're just scratching the surface of, of how good we can do that. And I think ultimately, if you don't do that it's a bit like telling a a university to drive the car with through a tunnel without headlights. like we need to be transparent with them about this is the journey these are the challenges this is where we are and this is how we can improve together uh, and i think that that is really exciting and i think we can draw a lot of inspiration from, from the world of, of digital health another interesting uh trend that i think that is happening outside of um Education that I think is, is applicable within education is the no no code uh trend. So we're seeing lots of very successful uh startups basically taking the complexity that comes with building software and reducing it down to something that's a bit closer to like assembling Lego blocks, which basically takes the productivity of, of a developer and and or non-developer uh, and and skyrockets. And I think when you think about what con- what makes for great learning experiences, um, it is absolutely critical to have the subject matter expert, the academic in there. But when, when I see some of the things that academics spend their time on, I think there's a huge potential for saying, okay, how can we take some of those building blocks and really save academics like hundreds of hours of, of time in replicating work that other academics are doing or trying to understand things that take a gazillion clicks to do something that's actually quite simple. So I think the no code trend is like completely flipping the notion of, of uh, productivity is an interesting one. And the final one, if I can do one more is the, in the analytics space, I think we're seeing an evolution that comes probably Qualtrics is the company that which was recently acquired by, by SAP uh, is the company that's pushed the needle a bit on this is like, how do we transition from, Data that describes the how to data that describes the why, and I think this has quite profound implications in education because the way that analytics um, has worked in education until today is very much like we can see this person has done this, uh, <laughs> and some sometimes also with some pretty really bad bad practices in terms of student privacy. I think, but that's a, that's a separate conversation. But really, what, what one would expect an educator to need is why has the student done that like why has the student not uh, watched the video to use a very simple example and i think that is that is another really interesting thing that will have implications in educational technology so i think those are the three the three big ones to me better evidence at finding ways to to really move the needle on saving time for for educators um, and moving analytics away from this sort of surveillance like how are they doing things and, and more towards something that actually allows the uh, educator to to care for their their students and to help them achieve better outcomes.
0: So the analytics piece is is really beyond just moving from lagging indicators to leading indicators, but really understanding kind of a level down. Yeah. From that what are the behavioural kind of uh, characteristics that are causing the issues? That the, the actual cause. Uh, And I
1: think the the best way to think about it is like, this is what great educators are already doing. Like if you walk into a classroom of someone who has extraordinary levels of student retention relative to uh, what one would expect for that particular student demographic, what often happens is that those educators have a unusual approach or commitment to student success that comes from caring about students and understanding the why so that we don't just say, "Okay, if this person has not submitted their assignment; they must be a bad human being." We should understand, like, why have they not submitted their assignment? How can we support them in in basically moving this, the student outcomes?
0: Awesome. I'll um, I'll I'll try and get some links to examples in each of the three trends from you and link them in the show notes afterwards um so people can check things out um and as i'm conscious of time so i I really really appreciate the conversation it's been fascinating um i wish you the very best of luck and success in the 2021
1: um likewise
0: 2020 has been pretty challenging for most people but um uh i will look forward to catching up with you soon and and thank you very much for joining the conversation It was a pleasure. See you you soon, Vitaly. Thanks, Anders. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode. For really useful links and references to topics we covered, please check out businessofeducation.co.uk. I really try and go above and beyond connecting what was covered to high-quality external resources so you can have some really tangible and actionable quick wins. Please, please, please share this with anybody in the business of education you think this would add value to. And lastly, I'd love to hear your feedback. If you'd like to be on the show yourself or recommend someone, please reach out on LinkedIn on Vitaly Klopot. that's V-I-T-A-L-Y-K-L-O-P-O-T, and write me a note. I'll be sure to get back to you. Thank you.